Chapter 38, Part 4 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Before the Austrasian army retreated from Auvergne, Theodoric exacted some pledges of the future loyalty of a people whose just hatred could be restrained only by their fear. A select band of noble youths, the sons of the principal senators, was delivered to the conqueror as the hostages of the faith of Childebert and of their countrymen. On the first rumor of war or conspiracy, these guiltless youths were reduced to a state of servitude, and one of them, Attalus, whose adventures are more particularly related, kept his master's horses in the diocese of Treves. After a painful search, he was discovered in this unworthy occupation by the emissaries of his grandfather, Gregory, Bishop of Langres, but his offers of ransom were sternly rejected by the avarice of the barbarian, who required an exorbitant sum of ten pounds of gold for the freedom of his noble captive. His deliverance was effected by a hardy stratagem of Leo, a slave belonging to the kitchens of the bishops of Langres. An unknown agent easily introduced him into the same family. The barbarian purchased Leo for the price of twelve pieces of gold, and was pleased to learn that he was deeply skilled in the luxury of an episcopal table. Next Sunday, said the Frank, I shall invite my neighbors and kinsmen, exert thy art, and force them to confess that they have never seen or tasted such an entertainment, even in the king's house. Leo assured him that, if he would provide a sufficient quantity of poultry, his wishes would be satisfied. The master, who already aspired to the merit of elegant hospitality, assumed as his own the praise which the voracious guests unanimously bestowed on his cook and the dexterous Leo insensibly acquired the trust and management of his household. After the patient expectation of a whole year, he cautiously whispered his design to Attalus, and exhorted him to prepare for flight in the ensuing night. At the hour of midnight, the intemperate guests retired from table, and the frank son-in-law, whose Leo attended to his apartment with a nocturnal potation, condescended to jest on the faculty with which he might betray his trust. The intrepid slave, after sustaining this dangerous raillery, entered his master's bedchamber, removed his spear and shield, silently drew the fleetest horses from the stable, unbarred the ponderous gates, and excited Attalus to save his life and liberty by incessant diligence. Their apprehensions urged them to leave their horses on the banks of the Meuse. They swam the river, wandered three days in the adjacent forest, and subsisted only by the accidental discovery of a wild plum-tree. As they lay concealed in a dark thicket, they heard the noise of horses. They were terrified by the angry countenance of their master, and they anxiously listened to his declaration that, if he could seize the guilty fugitives, one of them he would cut in pieces with his sword, the other would be exposed on a gibbet. At length Attalus and his faithful Leo reached the friendly habitations of a presbyter of Reim, who recruited their fainting strength with bread and wine, concealed them from the search of their enemy, and safely conducted them beyond the limits of the Austrasian kingdom to the episcopal palace of Longre. Gregory embraced his grandson with tears of joy, gratefully delivered Leo with his whole family from the yoke of servitude, and bestowed on him the property of a farm where he might end his days in happiness and freedom. Perhaps this singular adventure, which is marked with so many circumstances of truth and nature, was related by Attalus himself to his cousin or nephew, the first historian of the Franks. 
Gregory of Tours was born about sixty years after the death of Sidonius Apollinarius, and their situation was almost similar, since each of them was a native of Auvergne, a senator, and a bishop. The difference of their style and sentiments may, therefore, express the decay of Gaul, and clearly ascertain how much, in so short a space, the human mind had lost of its energy and refinement. We are now qualified to despise the opposite and perhaps artful misrepresentations which have softened or exaggerated the oppression of the Romans of Gaul under the reign of the Merovingians. The conquerors never promulgated any universal edict of servitude or confiscation, but a degenerate people, who excused their weakness by the specious names of politeness and peace, were exposed to the arms and laws of the ferocious barbarians, who contemptuously insulted their possessions, their freedom, and their safety. Their personal insults were partial and irregular, but the great body of the Romans survived the revolution, and still preserved the property and privileges of citizens. A large portion of their lands was exhausted for the use of the Franks, but they enjoyed the remainder exempt from tribute, and the same irresistible violence which swept away the arts and manufacturers of Gaul destroyed the elaborate and expensive system of imperial despotism. The provincials must frequently deplore the savage jurisprudence of the Salic or Ripurian laws, but their private life, in the important concerns of marriage, testaments, or inheritance, was still regulated by the Theodosian Code, and a discontented Roman might freely aspire or descend to the title and character of a barbarian. The honors of the state were accessible to his ambition. The education and temper of the Romans more peculiarly qualified them for offices of civil government, and as soon as emulation had rekindled their military ardor, they were permitted to march in the ranks, and even at the head of the victorious Germans. I shall not attempt to enumerate the generals and magistrates whose names attest the liberal policy of the Merovingians. The supreme command of Burgundy, with the title of patrician, was successfully entrusted to three Romans. The last and most powerful, Momulus, who alternately saved and disturbed the monarchy, had supplanted his father in the station of Count of Autun, and left the treasury of thirty talents of gold and two hundred and fifty talents of silver. The fierce and illiterate barbarians were excluded during several generations from the dignities and even from the orders of the church. The clergy of Gaul consisted almost entirely of native provincials. The haughty Franks fell prostrate at the feet of their subjects, who were dignified with the episcopal character and the power and riches which had been lost in war were insensibly recovered by superstition. In all temporal affairs, the Theodosian Code was the universal law of the clergy, but the barbaric jurisprudence had liberally provided for their personal safety. A subdeacon was equivalent to two francs, an altrusian and priest were held in similar estimation, and the life of a bishop was appreciated far above the common standard, at the price of nine hundred pieces of gold. The Romans communicated to their conquerors the use of the Christian religion and Latin language, but their language and their religion had alike degenerated from the simple purity of the Augustan and Apostolic age. The progress of superstition and barbarism was rapid and universal. The worship of the saints concealed from vulgar eyes the god of the Christians, and the rustic dialect of peasants and soldiers was corrupted by a Teutonic idiom and pronunciation. Yet. Such intercourse of sacred and social communion eradicated the distinctions of birth and victory. The nations of Gaul were gradually confounded under the name and government of the Franks. The Franks, after they mingled with their Gallic subjects, might have imparted the most valuable of human gifts, 
a spirit and system of constitutional liberty. Under a king, hereditary but limited, the chiefs and counselors might have debated at Paris in the palace of the Caesars. The adjacent field, where the emperors reviewed their mercenary legions, would have admitted the legislative assembly of freedmen and warriors, and the rude model which had been sketched in the woods of Germany might have been polished and improved by the civil wisdom of the Romans. But the careless barbarians, secure of their personal independence, disdained the labor of government. The annual assemblies of the month of March were silently abolished, and the nation was separated and almost dissolved by the conquest of Gaul. The monarchy was left without any regular establishment of justice, of arms, or of revenue. The successors of Clovis wanted resolution to assume, or strength to exercise, the legislative and executive powers which the people had abdicated. The royal prerogative was distinguished only by a more ample privilege of rapine and murder, and the love of freedom, so often invigorated and disgraced by private ambition, was reduced among the licentious Franks to the contempt of order and the desire of impunity. Seventy-five years after the death of Clovis, his grandson, Gontran, king of Burgundy, sent an army to invade the Gothic possessions of Septimania, or Languedoc. The troops of Burgundy, Berry, Auvergne, and the adjacent territories were excited by the hopes of spoil. They marched without discipline under the banners of German or Gallic counts. Their attack was feeble and unsuccessful, but the friendly and hostile provinces were desolated with indiscriminate rage. The cornfields, the villages, the churches themselves were consumed by fire. The inhabitants were massacred or dragged into captivity, and in the disorderly retreat, Five thousand of these inhuman savages were destroyed by hunger or intestine discord. When the pious Gontran reproached the guilt or neglect of their leaders, and threatened to inflict not a legal sentence, but instant and arbitrary execution, they accused the universal and incurable corruption of the people. No one, they said, any longer fears or respects his king, his duke, or his count. Each man loves to do evil, and freely indulges his criminal inclinations. The most gentle correction provokes an immediate tumult, and the rash magistrate who presumes to censure or restrain his seditious subjects seldom escapes alive from the revenge. It has been reserved for the same nation to expose, by their intemperate vices, the most odious abuse of freedom, and to supply its loss by the spirit of honor and humanity which now alleviates and dignifies their obedience to an absolute sovereign. The Visigoths had resigned to Clovis the greatest part of their Gallic possessions, but their loss was amply compensated by the easy conquest and secure enjoyment of the provinces of Spain. From the monarchy of the Goths, which soon involved the Suevic kingdom of Galicia, the modern Spaniards still derived some national vanity, but the historian of the Roman Empire is neither invited nor compelled to pursue the obscure and barren series of their annals. The Goths of Spain were separated from the rest of mankind by the lofty ridge of the Pyrenean Mountains. Their manners and institutions, as far as they were common to the Germanic tribes, have already been explained. I have anticipated in the preceding chapter the most important of their ecclesiastical events, the fall of Arianism and the persecution of the Jews, and it only remains to observe some interesting circumstances which relate to the civil and ecclesiastical constitution of the Spanish kingdom. After their conversion from idolatry or heresy, the Franks and the Visigoths were disposed to embrace with equal submission the inherent evils and accidental benefits of superstition. 
but the prelates of France, long before the extinction of the Merovingian race, had degenerated into fighting and hunting barbarians. They disdained the use of synods, forgot the laws of temperance and chastity, and preferred the indulgence of private ambition and luxury to the general interest of the sacerdotal profession. The bishops of Spain respected themselves, and were respected by the public. Their indissoluble union disguised their vices and confirmed their authority, and the regular discipline of the church introduced peace, order, and stability into the government of the state. From the reign of Recared, the first Catholic king, to that of Witiza, the immediate predecessor of the unfortunate Roderick, sixteen national councils were successfully convened. The six metropolitans, Toledo, Seville, Mareda, Braga, Tarragona, and Narbonne, presided according to their respective seniority. The assembly was composed of their suffragan bishops, who appeared in person, or by their proxies, and a place was assigned to the most holy or opulent of the Spanish abbots. During the first three days of the convocation, as long as they agitated the ecclesiastical questions of doctrine and discipline, the profane laity was excluded from their debates, which were conducted, however, with decent solemnity. But on the morning of the fourth day, the doors were thrown open for the entrance of the great officers of the palace, the dukes and counts of the provinces, the judges of the cities, and the Gothic nobles. And the decrees of heaven were ratified by the consent of the people. The same rules were observed in the provincial assemblies, the annual synods, which were empowered to hear complaints and redress grievances, and a legal government was supported by the prevailing influence of the Spanish clergy. The bishops, who, in each revolution, were prepared to flatter the victorious and to insult the prostrate, labored with diligence and success to kindle the flames of persecution and to exalt the mitre above the crown. Yet the national councils of Toledo, in which the free spirit of the barbarians was tempered and guided by episcopal policy, have established some prudent laws for the common benefit of the king and people. The vacancy of the throne was supplied by the choice of the bishops and palatines, and after the failure of the line of Alaric, the regal dignity was still limited to the pure and noble blood of the Goths. The clergy, who anointed their lawful prince, always recommended, and sometimes practiced, the duty of allegiance, and the spiritual censures were denounced on the heads of the impious subjects who should resist his authority and conspire against his life, or violate, by an indecent union, the chastity even of his widow. But the monarch himself, when he ascended the throne, was bound by a reciprocal oath to God, and his people, that he would faithfully execute his important trust. The real or imaginary faults of his administration were subject to the control of a powerful aristocracy, and the bishops and palatines were guarded by a fundamental privilege, that they should not be degraded, imprisoned, tortured, nor punished with death, exile, or confiscation, unless by the free and public judgment of their peers. One of these legislative councils of Toledo examined and ratified the code of laws which had been compiled by a succession of Gothic kings from the fierce Uric to the devout Egica. As long as the Visigoths themselves were satisfied with the rude customs of their ancestors, they indulged their subjects of Aquitaine and Spain in the enjoyment of the Roman law. Their gradual improvement in arts, in policy, and at length in religion encouraged them to imitate and to supersede these foreign institutions and to compose a code of civil and criminal jurisprudence for the use of a great and united people. The same obligations and the same privileges were communicated to the nations of the Spanish monarchy, and the conquerors, insensibly renouncing the Teutonic idiom, 
submitted to the restraints of equity, and exalted the Romans to the participation of freedom. The merit of this impartial policy was enhanced by the situation of Spain under the reign of the Visigoths. The provincials were long separated from their Arian masters by the irreconcilable difference of religion. After the conversion of Recared had removed the prejudices of the Catholics, the coasts, both of the ocean and Mediterranean, were still possessed by the eastern emperors, who secretly excited a discontented people to reject the yoke of the barbarians and to assert the name and dignity of Roman citizens. The allegiance of doubtful subjects is indeed most effectually secured by their own persuasion that they hazard more in a revolt that they can hope to obtain by a revolution. But it has appeared so natural to oppress those whom we hate and fear, that the contrary system well deserves the praise of wisdom and moderation. While the kingdoms of the Franks and Visigoths were established in Gaul and Spain, the Saxons achieved the conquest of Britain, the third great diocese of the prefecture of the West. Since Britain was already separated from the Roman Empire, I might, without reproach, decline a story familiar to the most illiterate and obscure to the most learned of my readers. The Saxons, who excelled in the use of the oar or the battle-axe, were ignorant of the art which alone could perpetuate the fame of their exploits. The provincials, relapsing into barbarism, neglected to describe the ruin of their country and the doubtful tradition was almost ex extinguished before the missionaries of Rome restored the light of science and Christianity. The declamations of Gildas, the fragments or fables of Nennius, the obscure hints of the Saxon laws and chronicles, and the ecclesiastical tales of the Venerable Bede, have been illustrated by the diligence, and sometimes embellished by the fancy of succeeding writers, whose works I am not ambitious either to censure or to transcribe. Yet the historian of the empire may be tempted to pursue the revolutions of a Roman province till it vanishes from his sight, and an Englishman may curiously trace the establishment of the barbarians from which he derives his name, his laws, and perhaps his origin. About forty years after the dissolution of the Roman government, Vortigern appears to have obtained the supreme, though precarious, command of the princes and cities of Britain. That unfortunate monarch, his been almost universally condemned for the weak and mischievous policy of inviting a formidable stranger to repel the vexatious inroads of a domestic foe. His ambassadors are dispatched by the gravest historians to the coast of Germany. They address a pathetic oration to the general assembly of the Saxons, and those warlike barbarians resolve to assist with a fleet and army the suppliants of a distant and unknown island. If Britain had indeed been unknown to the Saxons, the measure of its calamities would have been less complete. But the strength of the Roman government cannot always guard the maritime province against the pirates of Germany. The independent and divided states were exposed to their attacks, and the Saxons might sometimes join the Scots and the Picts in a tacit or express confederacy of rapine and destruction. Vortigern could only balance the various perils which assaulted on every side his throne and his people and his policy may deserve either praise or excuse if he preferred the alliance of those barbarians whose naval power rendered them the most dangerous enemies and the most serviceable allies. Hengist and Horsa, as they ranged along the eastern coast with three ships, were engaged by the promise of an ample stipend to embrace the defense of Britain, and their intrepid valor soon delivered the country from the Chalcedonian invaders. The Isle of Thanet, a secure and fertile district was allotted for the residence of these German auxiliaries. 
and they were supplied according to the treaty with a plentiful allowance of clothing and provisions. This favorable reception encouraged five thousand warriors to embark with their families in seventeen vessels, and the infant power of Hengist was fortified by this strong and seasonable reinforcement. The crafty barbarian suggested to Vortigern the obvious advantage of fixing, in the neighborhood of the Picts, a colony of faithful allies. A third fleet of forty ships, under the command of his son and nephew, sailed from Germany, ravaged the Orkneys, and disembarked with a new army on the coast of Northumberland, or Lothian, at the opposite extremity of the devoted land. It was easy to foresee, but it was impossible to prevent the impending evils. The two nations were soon divided and exasperated by mutual jealousies. The Saxons magnified all that they had done and suffered in the cause of an ungrateful people, while the Britons regretted the liberal rewards which could not satisfy the avarice of those haughty mercenaries. The causes of fear and hatred were inflamed into an irreconcilable quarrel. The Saxons flew to arms, and if they perpetrated a ferocious massacre during the security of a feast, they destroyed the reciprocal confidence which sustains the intercourse of peace and war. Hengist, who boldly aspired to the conquest of Britain, exhorted his countrymen to embrace the glorious opportunity. He painted in lively colors the fertility of the soil, the wealth of the cities, the pusillanimous temper of the natives, and the convenient situation of a spacious, solitary island, accessible on all sides to the Saxon fleets. The successive colonies which issued in the period of a century from the mouths of the Elbe, the Weser, and the Rhine, were principally composed of three valiant tribes, or nations, of Germany, the Jutes, the Old Saxons, and the Angles. The Jutes, who fought under the peculiar banner of Hengist, assumed the merit of leading their countrymen in the paths of glory, and of erecting in Kent the first independent kingdom. The fame of the enterprise was attributed to the primitive Saxons, and the common laws and language of the conquerors are described by the national appellation of a people which, at the end of four hundred years, produced the first monarchs of South Britain. The Angles were distinguished by their numbers and their success, and they claimed the honor of fixing a perpetual name on the country on which they occupied the most ample portion. The barbarians, who followed the hopes of rapine, either on the land or sea, were insensibly blended with this triple confederacy. The Frisians, who had been tempted by their vicinity to the British shores, might balance during a short space the strength and reputation of the native Saxons. The Danes, the Prussians, and the Rusians are faintly described, and some adventurous Huns, who had wandered as far as the Baltic, might embark on board the German vessels for the conquest of a new world. But this arduous achievement was not prepared or executed by the Union of National Powers. Each intrepid chieftain, according to the measure of his fame and fortunes, assembled his followers equipped a fleet of three, or perhaps of sixty, vessels, chose the place of the attack, and conducted his subsequent operations according to the events of the war and dictates of his private interest. In the invasion of Britain, many heroes vanquished and fell, but only seven victorious leaders assumed, or at least maintained, the title of kings. Seven independent thrones, the Saxon Heptarchy, were founded by the conquerors, and seven families, one of which has been continued by female secession to our present sovereign, derive their equal and sacred lineage from Woden, the god of war. It has been pretended that this republic of kings was moderated by a general council and a supreme magistrate, 
but such an artful scheme of policy is repugnant to the rude and turbulent spirit of the Saxons. Their laws are silent, and their imperfect annals afford only a dark and bloody prospect of intestine discord. A monk, who, in the profound ignorance of human life, has presumed to exercise the office of historian, strangely disfigures the state of Britain at the time of its separation from the Western Empire. Gildas describes in florid language the improvements of agriculture, the foreign trade which flowed with every tide into the Thames and Severn, the solid and lofty construction of public and private edifices. He accuses the sinful luxury of the British people, of a people, according to the same writer, ignorant of the most simple arts, and incapable, without the aid of the Romans, of providing walls of stone or weapons of iron for the defense of their native land. Under the long dominion of the emperors, Britain had insensibly molded into the elegant and servile form of a Roman province, whose safety was entrusted to a foreign power. The subjects of Honorius contemplated their new freedom with surprise and terror, and they were left destitute of any civil or military constitution, and their uncertain rulers wanted either skill or courage or authority to direct the public force against the public enemy. The introduction of the Saxons betrayed their internal weakness, and degraded the character both of the prince and of the people. Their consternation magnified the danger, and the want of union diminished their resources, and the madness of civil factions was more solicitous to accuse than to remedy the evils which they imputed to the misconduct of their adversaries. Yet the Britons were not ignorant, they could not be ignorant, of the manufacture or use of arms. The successive and disorderly attacks of the Saxons allowed them to recover from their amazement, and the prosperous or adverse events of the war added discipline and experience to their native valor. While the continent of Europe and Africa yielded without resistance to the barbarians, the British island, alone and unaided, maintained a long, a vigorous, though an unsuccessful struggle against the formidable pirates who, almost at the same instant, assaulted the northern, the eastern, and the southern coasts. The cities, which had been fortified with skill, were defended with resolution. The advantages of ground, hills, forests, and morasses were diligently improved by the inhabitants. The conquest of each district was purchased with blood, and the defeats of the Saxons are strongly attested by the discreet silence of their analyst. Hengist might hope to achieve the conquest of Britain, but his ambition, in an active reign of thirty-five years, was confined to the possession of Kent and the numerous colony which he had planted in the north was extirpated by the sword of the Britons. The monarchy of the West Saxons was laboriously founded by the persevering efforts of three martial generations. The life of Serdric, one of the bravest of the children of Woden, was consumed in the conquest of Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, and the loss which he sustained in the battle of Mount Baden reduced him to a state of inglorious repose. Kenric, his valiant son, advanced into Wiltshire, besieged Salisbury, at that time seated on a commanding eminence, and vanquished an army which advanced to the relief of the city. In the subsequent battle of Marlborough, his British enemies displayed their military science. Their troops were formed in three lines, and each line consisted of three distinct bodies, and the cavalry, the archers, and the pikemen were distributed according to the principles of Roman tactics. The Saxons charged in one weighty column, boldly encountered with their short swords the long lances of the Britons, and maintained an equal conflict till the approach of night. Two decisive victories, the death of three British kings, and the reduction of Curranchester, Bath, and Gloucester, established the fame and power of Caolin, 
the grandson of Cerdric, who carried his victorious arms to the banks of the Severn. After a war of a hundred years, the independent Britons still occupied the whole extent of the western coast, from the wall of Antoninus to the extreme promontory of Cornwall, and the principal cities of the inland country still opposed the arms of the barbarians. Resistance became more languid, as the number and boldness of the assailants continually increased, winning their way by slow and painful efforts, the Saxons, the Angles, and their various confederates, advanced from the north, from the east, and from the south, till their victorious banners were united in the center of the island. Beyond the Severn, the Britons still asserted their national freedom, which survived the heptarchy and even the monarchy of the Saxons. The bravest warriors, who preferred exile to slavery, found a secure refuge in the mountains of Wales. The reluctant submission of Cornwall was delayed for some ages, and a band of fugitives acquired a settlement in Gaul by their own valor or the liberality of the Merovingian kings. The western angle of Amorica acquired the new appellations of Cornwall and the Lesser Britain, and the vacant hands of the Osimii were filled by a strange people, who, under the authority of their counts and bishops, preserved the laws and language of their ancestors. To the feeble descendants of Clovis and Charlemagne, the Britons of Amorica refused the customary tribute, subdued the neighboring dioceses of Vannes, Rennes, and Nantes, and formed a powerful though vassal state which has been united to the crown of France. End of chapter 38, part 4